Hey everybody, it's Charles with the Barbershop Group Podcast. Glad to be back on with you all. Um, I know a lot of times we tend to focus on uh, on mental health and everything in our in our uh, on our platform, and and, and that's great because you guys know that I'm all about mental health, right? Uh, but that's not the only thing that we do. We're also about uh, helping men develop some some social skills and and social ties and networking. It's extremely important for guys out there who may be getting ready to go to college. They're in college, starting their professional. Uh, life and um, it's just really really important that we provide as many resources as possible to help lift everybody up in our community so today uh, I've got two really really special people on the show obviously some of you guys are familiar with Jameer Abney uh, who has uh, co-hosted for us before we'll continue to do some more I've just got to keep lighting that fire for him and uh, sending him out there for some folks. But uh, Jameer is uh, is a wonderful, I wanna say young man, but he's really beyond beyond his years. Um, really, really cool guy, man, who's uh, working with students out at Colgate. Um, if you guys don't believe that young African-American men are in the fields of academia and are pulling people along, I want you to follow Jameer and you'll find out what he's doing. Um, just really good stuff. And if you want to go back and listen to one of our previous podcasts, you can do that. We'll throw it in the link. But we also have on the show today, uh, Dr. Lee Pelton. And some of you older cats may be familiar with Dr. Lee Pelton. Some of you younger guys are like, who, who is that? Well, that's the whole reason why we're doing this show today. Okay. Uh, Dr. Dr. Pelton is an academic administrator, college president. He's been around for quite some time guys you know a lot of times we we wait too long to give somebody their flowers and we're going to give dr pelton his flowers today um you know he and jameer developed the relationship and you'll get to hear a little bit more about how that relationship developed uh later on in the podcast but i mean you know just take a listen for a minute guys you know dr pelton has he's held positions at, at colgate at dartmouth at willamette right at emerson he's getting ready to leave emerson to become the president and CEO of the uh, the Boston Foundation. So, I mean, you know, some heavy hitting stuff. Uh, grew up in Wichita, Kansas, uh, of all places, right? Uh, but he's been around and, and networked with a lot of people and developed a lot of people. So we're gonna jump right in today. Uh, and Jameer, Dr. Pelton, how are you all? Doing great, man. Good to be here. Doing well, doing well. Uh... Uh, President Pelton, thank you so much uh, for joining. Uh, as Charles kind of alluded to, you're one of my my mentors and people that I look up to. So I'm excited about this opportunity to share some of that um, with people today. But um, I think as Charles kind of touched on, you, you've had an opportunity to, to see a lot of different places and be involved, but obviously home um, is where a lot of this starts and in Wichita, Kansas for you. And I'd just be curious to hear you tell us a little bit about how you go from Kansas to the Northeast and out in the Pacific Northwest where you and I first met and now finding yourself back um, headed to take over the Boston Foundation. Like, give us a little bit of your journey, your story, or some of the high points um, that you'd like to touch on or some of the things that have motivated you towards where you are right now. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so, you know, I grew up in Kansas, a foreign country for most folks. <laughs> most of you, very few of you probably listening have ever been to Kansas. And if you did, you touched down and, and, and left. I, I, and I was not in Kansas City. I was in Wichita, Kansas, which is actually in the south, uh, southeastern part of Kansas. And it's actually the largest uh, city uh, in, uh, in Kansas. There's Kansas 
Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and the combined, you know, that's a fairly large city. So, you know, I grew up, um, I think the notable things that I grew up uh, in the shadow of uh, the uh, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, which is in 1954. We, all, we know that income, that outcome, it took uh, really decades really for that, to, for us to see uh, that law realized. And there's great resistance uh, to that by states and, and so on. But I grew up um, in the shadow of that. Uh, and. Uh, uh, headed off to uh, kindergarten at, in uh, 1955. I'm telling my age now. And uh, that was one year after uh, Brown v. Um, the board, uh, Topeka Board of Education. You know, I grew up in a house without indoor plumbing until I was uh, six years old. And uh, so I lived in a small enclave of black folks uh, really on the outskirts of Kansas, uh, Wichita, but not, uh, we weren't in the country, <laughs> although we may have been country folks, but we were not in the country, uh, but grew um, uh, up without indoor plumbing uh, until I was six. And I can remember when I was six years old, uh, city people came in and dug uh, sewer lines. Uh, so we didn't have to go, you know, to an outhouse. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, I know what it was like to be uh, without means. Uh, my father was a butcher. Um, he was a part of the union uh, at a, a meatpacking plant. Uh, my mother uh, cleaned houses for a living. Uh, in fact, she cleaned houses for a living until about two years before she died. Uh, my grandmother lived next door. Uh, she cleaned houses uh, as well. Uh, and we lived in this small African-American uh, community uh, surrounded by working class uh, whites and working class Latinx folks. Um, you know, and looking back on that, I realize now that uh, uh, in a really profound way, the way in which uh, municipal governments uh, can legalize uh, racism. Uh, and that is to say that all the folks around us had sewer lines, but we didn't. Uh, and we didn't obviously because we were invisible uh, and uh, we were invisible. And it was a part of, you know, entrenched legalized racism is what it was. And um, and uh, so despite that, you know, I had a very, I had a, you know, like a lot of black folks do, we have a very tribal family. I had lots of relatives, aunts and uncles and a bunch of people. If you didn't know who they were, you'd call them a cousin. Anyway, you know, I had all these cousins around. And, and, uh, and the center, the center of the, the, the tribal existence was two things, three things actually, food, storytelling because the oral tradition is so important for us and god those three things and uh so i i grew up uh and in my family um there are three things that we valued and were at the top of the list one was our faith uh, the second was our family and the third was a strong belief 
in education, and that education could be a life raft and a sea uh, for a young person like me uh, uh, in a sea of troubled waters. Uh, and those principles of, uh, you know, faith uh, and church and family and um, education uh, are essential to who I am and uh, what I, uh, you know, what I hope to be. Um, I went off to uh, my, my uh, grammar school and my middle school was predominantly white. I think I was one of, you know, a handful of black folks at those. Uh, and then went to my local, uh, to my high school, uh, which was more diverse, uh, but not much more. Um, and then uh, went to Wichita State University, which was, you know, across the tracks, really across the tracks <laughs> and two miles away from uh, my home uh, and uh, studied English literature and uh, psychology. Um, if I'd been on the East Coast at the time, uh, this was in the late 60s, early 70s, I probably would have gone to a small liberal arts college somewhere, uh, or maybe a place like Harvard or Dartmouth or so. But I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know those places really existed. So I, I went off to my local state school, uh, and then from there I went to uh, Harvard University, got a PhD uh, in English American literature, taught at Harvard, became dean at Colgate University, dean of Dartmouth College. Then uh, you know moved uh, to Willamette to become president, and uh, was there for 13 years, and now 10 years here at Emerson College, and then I will end that tour of duty uh, in June and uh, head the Boston Foundation, which is the foundation we have about 1.5 billion dollars in assets. We're one of the oldest community foundations in the country, um, and our job is to. Improve, improve lives and strengthen communities. That's what we do. And we do it through an equity lens. And um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to be there. It's stuff that I've tried to do um, uh, on an ad hoc basis, as they say. I tried to, as, 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 I, as I said, I'm now get to, I, now I get to go and do a job full time and be paid for it for what I've been doing for part time and not getting paid for it uh, all my life. Uh, and so that's my trajectory. I would say that when I became president of Willamette in 2000, uh, uh, in 1998, um, there were only four black presidents in the country in uh, predominantly white institutions, private white institutions, only four. I was the fifth, um, and uh, so I'm, you know, I'm discounting uh, historically black colleges and universities, but for predominantly white independent uh, colleges and universities, I was, uh, I was the fifth. And so, like a lot of, you know, people, you know, I'm, you know, we're we're blazing trails, and uh, and uh, happy to do it. Obviously, quite quite a journey, quite a story. You talk about the family network and kind of the community network. I'm from a, a similar type of background where everybody was your cousin, your brother, your sister, your aunt. Um, you knew everybody on the block and everybody looked out for everybody else. So I totally hear that. But when you think about 
networking, you think about some of those relationships and getting beyond that communal unit. Um, I think one of the things um, that Charles and I have talked about with the barbershop group is in particular for men, like expanding out to reach for help, to, to ask um, for people to, to push them forward and some of the things that they're interested in. Uh, we'll touch on this a little bit later, but um, how you and I have developed our relationship came out of a really unique um, kind of way for someone to reach out to someone. But do you think there are particular things when you think about men of color or men in general that hold us back from seeking some of that support? And if so, what are, what are things that you've seen in your yeah. career and in your life? Well, what I, you know, what I try to do is I say, I try to make the invisible visible. You know, people talk, to, you know, you talk about K through 12 education or higher education and people talk about the achievement gap between, you know, white students and African-American students. That is misnamed. It's not an achievement gap. It is an opportunity gap. That's what the gap is because a lot of black folks like me and others, uh, we did not have the opportunities that other uh, folks had. Uh, and why? Because they were not visible to us. You know, I remember I, uh, <laughs> when I was, you know, thinking about going to college, I remember somebody talking about, well, I'm going to go off to Dartmouth. You know, I thought, well, what the hell is Dartmouth? And, you know, <laughs> so I didn't know Ivy League anything. It was just, I'm going to go to my state school. I was going to play ball, play football. Uh, uh, went to the locker room and saw those big old guys. And I said, no, this is not for me. <laughs> I would do something else. But uh, so it's, it's the opportunity gap. And, you know, uh, it is, my life's work really is to try to make the invisible visible to folks. I've mentored a lot of young people. And I've, I've, I've mentored uh, high school students, uh, recently here in Boston, I actually mentored uh, school, uh, high school students when I was at, in college. And there was a young man who was uh, brilliant, uh, black man uh, in high school. And I became acquainted with him when he was a junior in high school and became his uh, mentor. And I was president then. And we were talking about going off to colleges and universities. Um, and uh, he was a football player. He wanted to play football in college. And uh, so after about a year, he said, well, I want to come to Emerson. And I said, well, you got to check that out, young man, because we don't have football. <laughs> so that's not going to work out. Uh, that was, you know, that was making the invisible visible to him. And then I said to him in the fall of his senior year, I said, have you taken the SATs? This is the standardized test that you have to take in order. And he said, what is that? You know, so I had to break that down to him. And um, that's why I say it's, it's not an achievement gap. We use that term, but it's, it's, it's a misnomer. It's an opportunity gap. And he hadn't, he didn't have anybody, you know, in his family, you know, that could make the invisible visible, could that, you know, could say to him, and he had counselors in, in, in high school, but but apparently no one said, you know, you got to take the SATs before you apply to, to college. So he did, and he got into um, a college here in, 
in Massachusetts and, and uh, played a little ball, but not much, uh, and uh, is, is, is doing well. So that's how I describe the work that I do. Uh, and I, that's how I describe the work that uh, many black men need is for somebody to make the invisible visible for them. And then, you know, then you open up the gates to opportunity and folks will walk through and do some beautiful things in life. So when you think about that opportunity gap, and I think you, you aptly named this as kind of making the invisible visible, what are, what are some of the other ways when you think about those mentor relationships and how they, how they help or how they can can open those doors and those access points for for young men and for even adult men with other men to be able to find um, the type of support and help that they might be needing or looking for or maybe can't name. Yeah, well, part of it is developing relationships so someone feels comfortable talking to you about themselves and their life. Uh, and know that you will not be uh, judgmental, uh, that you are available um, to really support and, and, and help them. And to, and to have, uh, for many of the young men that I've worked with, um, you know, I've been, I've been the stable male presence in their lives, you know, and and uh, and you know they they you know folks will open up to me in a way that they might not um, at home and uh, disclose you know stuff stuff about themselves that they might not disclose uh, at home for a variety of reasons and so having that place of uh, comfort and honesty and authenticity. Um, is important and it's significant. It's, it's significant for everyone, but I think it's it's particularly significant uh, for uh, young black males to have that have that opportunity. I think that's awesome. When you talk about that comfort, and uh, and I'll go back to you talk about going to Willamette in the late '90s and being there as one of the one of five um, black presidents at a predominantly white institution or PWI. And I showed up at Willamette in the fall of 2008 um, as a first year student um, there on the football team. And so my four years there where I got my under, undergraduate degree also um, in psychology at the time. And I'll never forget seeing you on the sidelines at the football game in your Letterman jacket that said the Prez on the back <laughs> and just being like, that's so cool. Yeah, because you're in this enclave in the Pacific Northwest. If you're not familiar with the Portland, Seattle area, very white, um, an Asian community, and not a lot of um, black people. Um, in certain areas, you have a lot of Latinx um, members of the community, but you're you're one of a few in a lot of cases. And being on a small residential liberal arts campus, you beyond the team, you're in a lot of classes with a lot of people who don't have similar experiences as you and me being from North Carolina, from a small Southern town with race as something that was always a really difficult thing for me, just seeing the person who was the person in charge, the person who made big decisions, the person who was viewed as the leader, 
be on campus, be visible on campus, but be a black man was so moving and so impactful. And then to find myself now at about 10 years later, getting my master's degree on Harvard's campus on the other side of the country and just being like, I remember that that person and now you're at Emerson and I'm like, I know what I wanna do. I know what I'm interested in. I'm working in the field of education now doing the work that I do to start focus on diversity and access. And I just, when I say the oddest way to try to connect with someone, general email on the Emerson website, president at emerson.edu. And I'm like, he probably doesn't remember me, but I'm gonna try. And you talk about that that opportunity gap and you talk, talk about people not taking those chances or maybe taking advantage of the resources available to them. I just sent an email and crossed my fingers. And now here we are almost four years from, from that experience as I am now at Colgate where you previously spent time and you become a close mentor to me. And so you think about that connection and kind of that odd like way to find someone and that odd way to build a relationship. When you think about some of the people you've mentored over the years and connections and the people that you've met in the different places, what stands out to you about the ways that you've connected with people, the places that you've met, some of the young people that you've worked with, the young man you talked about um, that you've mentored, and then me just sending an email so now we're sitting here having this conversation and you're somebody that that I look to because I hope to one day be in, in the place that you're at now and be a college president. Well, well, you know, thank you. First of all, uh, as you know, as, as you remember, I, I never wore the president's title or doctor. Well, I asked people to call me Lee and a lot of people did. A lot of students called me Lee, at least those of us, those who have the courage to do that. And uh, because I, you know, I see myself in that that role, and uh, I see myself, uh, you know, in people like you, you know, coming up and trying to make your way in the world, bright uh, and uh, engaged. You got a strategy. You got a goal, high goals for yourself, and uh, so I see. You know my own my own uh, development reflected, and you. By the way, I should tell folks he was a superstar on the on the football field. So, he was. what were you number twenty nine? What was your number? I was number twenty six. Twenty six. Twenty six. I just I just had the mind upside down. So number twenty six. He and he could cut. I mean, man, you you were you 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 were, you were so good, and uh, and but it's also very bright. And um, so it was natural for me. I did, I did, of course, I remembered you. And uh, I remembered you not only as a football player, but as a student. And uh, the one, the thing that I believed about you was that you had a good heart, um, that you had a good heart. Uh, and, and you do, and you still do. And uh, that's what attracted me, uh, you know, to you to develop this this mentoring relationship, and you know if if you do this right, um, you know the the mentor also learns from the mentee. Uh, you know it's 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 bi transactional. It's not uni unilateral in that way, and um, so that's certainly been the case for me. I've I've enjoyed our relationship. I actually I cherish our relationship. I love to hear from you, and. Um, 
and to be in partnership with you. That's how I, I, I see this relationship that we have. So you talk about that, the ability to learn from that person that you're, you're giving to or you're pouring into. And I 100% agree. One of the things that I love working in education and getting to work with young people, it's just the people that you meet and how they impact you and change the way maybe you see the world around you. And I think the value of these opportunities to encourage people to reach out and to build those relationships is you never know what it might introduce you to or what you might bring to them that invites you into conversations that you didn't expect. So I think those things are, are so, so useful in these relationships and why I would encourage people if you have those people you aspire to, even if it's just an email or just a simple hello or just finding a way to, to jump out of the crowd of people to build that connection is, is so, so useful because you never know where it could take you. And one of the odd things with um, Lee and I is I was at Willamette and then I was at Harvard and now I'm at Colgate, places that he's been associated with and not intentionally, I've just found myself in this pathway and kind of following in his footsteps literally, but also very excited about what does the potential of, of that future look like? I uh, was listening to um, your recent interview with Deval Patrick, and one of the things um, that you say is excellence is always about becoming something and thinking about kind of the aspiration for people. How would you encourage men to think about like that idea of excellence or being aspirational or thinking about building kind of goals for themselves, especially lofty goals like the one that I put out there for myself and the ones that obviously you've had for yourself to get to where you are currently in your life? Well, you know, I would, I would say that, um, you know, success, but let me put it this way, that your aspirations have to be based in a set of values and you have a set of values and everything uh, flows, everything flows from that. And so when I speak to you, uh, your values come through to me. Uh, your values are visible. Um, and I believe that, uh, at least in our field, professional field, that, uh, that in order to succeed, uh, it has to emanate from a set of values. And uh, I know that your values are around equity. I know your values are about how to make space and room uh, for other young people of color, uh, how, to, how to inspire them to achieve at the highest level. I know that you uh, are, uh, are focused on, uh, this is an overused phrase these days, but you focus on lifting folks up. Uh, and, uh, you know, those are great values. And, uh, you know, those will, you know, that that's that's a core of who you are and uh, it shapes uh, your orientation. I mean, you could have probably left Colgate and gone off to some corporate job or something like that, but no, you decided to be in this field of, uh, of education and learning and, and teaching and community. Um, and, uh, you know, that speaks to your, uh, speaks to your, your values and I if I can ask you a question if I can turn the tables where does where where did those values come for you 
I think oh, that's a that's a tough one because I think like like you, I, I came like I said, I came from a community. Um, family has always been hugely, hugely important to me. And one of the things I I think a lot about is what have people given for me to be able to have the opportunities that I've had and I've taken advantage of a lot of things because I know there were sacrifices made along the way and people who didn't get opportunities in order for me to have them or people who have opened doors for me to be able to open it wider for the next person behind me. But also ultimately because as I've gotten older and as I've seen more of the world, I had a chance to talk about football. I actually got the chance to play um, football in Germany after leaving Willamette for a short time. I played an all-star game in Mexico at a point in time. And I remember specifically being in Central America and just that lifestyle being very different than what I was used to um, seeing uh, the border patrol and seeing that the heavy artillery just in the grocery store and just being like, wow, this is, this is different. But then also through the work that I do now in college recruitment, the young people that I meet are just so incredible. And I'm not even talking about the kids you see at like the elite private schools or the boarding schools, but just really interesting, engaged and passionate young people at their local public school that just haven't thought about certain opportunities. And how do you, how do you give them just the idea to have the chance or to, to be brave enough to take the chance? And one of the things that I've been fortunate of is I grew up um, in single parent home and my mom is always just, she's pushed and encouraged and helped us feel confident. And as um, the oldest of three, it was my responsibility to move that forward for my younger brother and my younger sister. And now it's how do I be that big brother for the students on the campus that I work on, for the students that I recruit, for the people that meet me in the field and the work that I do, because it's a very public facing job, but it also means that I have a lot of access and opportunities, if I try, to make a difference, to, to move the needle just a little bit for someone. And for me, it's if I make that one bit of difference for that one student, then I, I've done my job. If I encourage them, even if it's not to come where I'm at, to, to go to college or to take advantage of that opportunity after college, because I was someone who actually came down to me, the military or Willamette, Willamette to be honest. Um, I was ready to sign and go to the Marines. I had a Marine recruiter, a young black man who I really looked up to, and he came and he had dinner with my aunt, uh, my mom and myself. and. The only thing that really drove me to go to Willamette was the fact that I was interested in college football. Otherwise, I would have signed up and I would have gone and went to the military and that would have been my commitment. And there are a lot of different things that I know young people can do, but is do you have that person that's inspiring you to take whatever that leap might be? And mine is rooted in family, mine is rooted in giving back and that opportunity to be able to help and to try to make a difference to be impactful, but it, wasn't initially education where I saw myself doing that. It's just what I found along the way. And you had a great ball, a great football coach. You know, oh, you yeah. had a coach, a coach that didn't have arms, didn't have hands, and played linebacker in college at a small, co I don't know if it was Lutheran College or something like that. And uh, he had to be an inspiration. I mean, he inspired everybody. Can you talk a little bit about Spec? Oh man, Coach Speckman, his uh his saying was uh, turn your setbacks into comebacks. And this is a man born with um 
hands cut off um, right at just below the elbow, no hands, um, but could write, type, drove a car. I saw him um, write with a pen and a pencil. You could text. text. Yeah, text text on a phone. Only thing I, I saw that he could not do, to be honest, was tie his shoes. He wore Velcro shoes. But everything else, just on a day-to-day -day basis, he was defying the odds and doing it with a level of energy and vigor that for young men and the young women that were around the team, it was just like, how can you discount yourself when you're watching this man with energy and passion and love embrace a sport that's that you would think you couldn't do with no hands, but had done it at an All-American level um, as a linebacker, as you talked about. But then also was just so welcoming. And I one of the things I think back on my first semester at Willamette, to be honest, I academically was not ready. Between football and school, I was just overwhelmed. And I remember I found myself on academic probation and sitting down with Speck and a couple of the other coaches there wasn't a, well, we're just gonna like cast you aside and move on. It was like, how do we how do we help you? How do you learn to manage time better? How do we help you get organized? And they lifted me up and he believed in me. And four years later, I was sitting there as a straight A student, interested in going on to graduate school, have become an all conference and um, all league level player. Like I said, went on to that all-star game in Mexico. And Speck and I, we still keep in touch. And actually I ended up in Germany playing for his son, Tim. Um, for the club that I played for over there. And so he was just a walking, like <laughs> a walking inspirational quote in some way. Because it's like, I can't doubt myself if he's out here doing any and everything with no hands. <laughs> well, imagine that story. Playing football uh, on academic probation. And then a few years later, find yourself at Harvard University. Imagine yeah. I I wouldn't have guessed it. And, and you think about that, like, are there students that you've had along the way or people that you've met along the way that have been in kind of their lowest point that you've been able to give them some measure of, of advice or something that you would say to somebody who's like, I can't do well, it. Yeah, what would you tell that person? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's about, again, it's, you know, it's about opportunity and making the invisible visible so they can see the network. You know, my kids are enormously privileged. <laughs> So they see, they, you know, they don't, uh, that world, it's at their fingertips. My son uh, is now, you know, he's 26, just turned 27. He's a Hollywood writer, writes for Insecure, which is in his last season, uh, unfortunately. And, um, you know, and he's, you know, he's already successful. And he's been able to do that because uh, all the networking, I mean, he could, he could see, it was just right there at his fingertips. Um, and uh, but for other folks, you know, it's you know, it's 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 not there, and so I I see that as my primary job is uh, to, as I say, to make the invisible visible, to provide exposure uh, for young folks, uh, particularly men. I don't think I've mentored any women, but uh, black men, um, uh, you know, to you know to you know, as they say, to live out their uh, live out their dreams and uh, help, help expose what their dreams are uh, and how to get there uh, and what the possibilities are and what the options are. You had to make, you, I know you, like all of us, you ha you've had to make a lot of decisions along the way. And when you look back on your life, 
It's all about the decisions that you made. Uh, that defines who you are. And, and so to have uh, someone, uh, you know, like me with you, be in partnership with you, when you've had, you, you, you've, you've had these critical moments, you know, do I go through this door or that door? Uh, and it's, you know, it's helpful to have someone there uh, with you. Um, I've never told you what to do. I would never do that. But I have been in partnership with you and provided you my advice and uh, uh, insight. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of mentees and uh, some of the mentees that I have now are like, you know, in their forties <laughs> and, and, and so on. So they're, you know, they're growing, growing men. So let me ask, let me ask both of you guys really quick, because I mean, this is a, a marvelous, awesome relationship that both of you have and, and your lives are just, just mind blowing. I hope that everybody listening just can really, really take this in, but I have a, a big question uh, for you all. And, and that's this, obviously, you know, uh, Dr. Pelton, you have, you, as you said, you have a lot of uh, mentees. Do you think that uh, African-American men, for example, are loud enough when it comes to networking and mentorship or could we be a lot louder? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, we could be a lot, yeah, a lot louder about it. And, and, and I, you know, and I think that uh, what we need are more mentors, you know, more black males who are willing to be mentors. Uh, and, you know, just about anybody can be a mentor, uh, really. And uh, because, you know, if you have good listening skills, if you got some experience. And so we, yeah, we need much more of that in our, you know, in our, in our communities and our, our neighborhoods. Absolutely. And I think on my end, it's like, while I continue to be mentored and still feel very under-resourced and under like experienced, I, I recognize that even as you talk about privilege and opportunity, like I've seen and done more than a lot of young men my age. I, I turned 30 last year and I think about the students I work with, like a lot of them are just like just beginning adulthood and there's so many things that they just are not aware of and especially some of the students of color that I work with are coming from really underprivileged situations or situations where they just don't know the world. And it's an opportunity to introduce them to just a broader set of what's out there. And actually one of the things I did a couple of years ago was go back home. And I had the opportunity through my um, former principal when I was in high school back in North Carolina to talk with a group of fifth graders, fifth grade boys, um, all races, um, ethnicities, different um, social circumstances, but just to say, hey, I'm somebody that's from here. I was sitting where you were 20 some odd years ago. And like, this is where I am now. And these are the things that I've done. And this is where I'm going. And just to inspire young people as, as early as we can to just think about what's what's out there and what could I do? What's available to me? What are the types of opportunities? But especially when you have somebody who's coming from exactly where you started. And to say, as, as, as Lee alluded to, to go from academic probation to at Harvard and now working at a place like Colgate and having some of the resources that this institution has and doing some of the things that we're doing around mentorship and equity and access, it's, it's very exciting for me. And one of the even more exciting things now, as I talked about wanting to be a future college president, 
is just recently being admitted to my first of, I hope, many doctoral programs to go and get that additional degree. So that door opens even that much more and to add even more to that opportunity to give more to my community and more to young men to think about what they can do. And I always just don't forget, where did I come from? Where did I start? And continue to go back and give back and pour into those communities so that more young men take advantage of that. If you remember, we started at uh, Willamette something called the Willamette Academy, um, which I started. And it was a program aimed at uh, young people that were like we're talking about now, but they're uh, almost all Latinx uh, folks uh, because Willamette exists in this fertile valley. And so uh, there were a lot of migrant um, uh, fa families there. Many of these kids who were in this program came from families where English was a second language. And we started them out in the seventh grade and worked with them and their families uh, through the 12th grade. And I think each and every year, 100% of the students who are in that program have been accepted into a four-year college. Doesn't mean that they all went to a four-year college, but they were accepted into a four-year college. Um, and one of those students actually is a, he must be a junior now at Harvard. They have some at Stanford, University of Chicago, uh, and places, places uh, like that. And that was, that was, that was the way I structured mentorship, but for, there's now 130 students in that program, I think. And, um, and I, 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 I can remember early on when parents would say to me, uh, in Spanish, you know, I ne it never occurred to me that my son or daughter could go to college. It never, ever occurred to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, there they are, so. And the great thing about that program now, as you talk about it, the executive director was at Willamette when I was a student, Emilio Solano, and actually he and I have worked together now the last year or so to get me in front of those students as well, to again, talk about options. And, and just like I said earlier, to, to to keep the cycle going of people giving back, coming back, working with those communities and just to, to help families, help students realize what's available to them. I think it's just the power to know that you can, it goes a long way. Yeah. Give me one second. So guys, we are running short on time. We know that we, uh, we've got to let, uh, Dr. Pelton get on to the next thing. Uh, but I hope that you all have in, enjoyed the conversation between Jameer and Dr. Pelton. There, there's so much to take away from that. And we could continue on uh, with this conversation because I, you know, there, there are many, many questions about networking and these relationships uh, when it comes to African-American men today, because where I stand, as some of you know, when you listen to the podcast, I'm always trying to encourage men to open up to one another, talk about those areas of life where they need assistance, uh, where they may not uh, feel like they're the, the you know, the, the alpha male in the room or the all-star in the room uh, so that they can get help from somebody else and can develop. We all like to talk about mentorship uh, and we need more mentorship as Dr. Pelton said, but I think it's important to understand that in order for there to be mentorship, we also have to be willing to become mentees, 
okay um i i think even before we become mentors we have to be mentees and so in becoming a mentee there's a certain amount of psychological work there's a certain amount of shadow work and ego work that we've got to put in to make ourselves ready uh and available and accessible to someone like uh dr pelton even to someone like uh jameer because if we're not in the proper headspace, then when we meet these individuals, we won't really know who we're talking to and won't be receptive to the information and to mentorship opportunities that they provide. So we have to remember those things, but we're glad that you all had an opportunity to, uh, to listen to this interview today. We'll make sure that uh, we got some interesting quotes for you all in the bio notes. Uh, again, always you can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. If you have a question for us, you can DM us at any one of those social media platforms. We'd love to hear your feedback and your questions. Um, also, you're able to follow uh, Jameer as well on Facebook and on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn uh, as well. So we try to make ourselves available to you all to create more of a network for you all. Dr. Pelton, it's been so great to have you on your show again. We give you your flowers now, sir. Okay, we thank you so much for the work that you have done in the community. Uh, and as well as not just African American life, but America, we, we know that uh, you will go down in history as someone who made an impact and a difference in the world that we live in. So guys, until next time, as I always say, uh, take care of yourselves, love yourself more, love your people more, and we'll talk to you soon.